Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're going to jump into a very interesting discussion of folklore. I always like talking about folklore. Um, but to, before we do that, uh, finish up some unfinished business from yesterday. You recall we talked with uh, Dr. Norm Jones, and the title of his talk and our discussion yesterday was What is an Educated Person uh, in the 21st Century? We got talking about the relevance of history. And uh, we got an email from Glenn in the Uona Basin. I wanted to get this in. Glenn says, good morning from a USU history alum. I began my college career as an engineering major, had some life-changing events such as my wife becoming pregnant and dropped out. I then became a non-traditional student out in the Uona Basin and graduated with a bachelor's of science in history. I've always been interested in writing and history, but my college career was originally intended to enhance my professional career uh, character. In uh, short, engineering had the promise of a paycheck, while history had the appeal of my interest. Um, geography of the two degrees and life situations did not allow me to go uh, onto the campus and complete my engineering degree, so I thought uh, at the time I was settling for a history degree. I've never looked back. The critical thinking skills, the writing, and growing passion for history has forever enhanced my life for the better. I've continually worked in the oil field here for 26 years, about half of which was as a truck driver hauling crude oil to the refineries in the Wasatch Front. I consider myself deeply uh, philosophical oil field trash, quote-unquote. <laughs> I want to shout out to Dr. Robert Moeller for his guidance and brilliant lectures. Here is to a better life for me. That's Glenn in the Uinta Basin. Thank you, Glenn, for that. Welcome now to Access Utah. The title of a talk to be given uh, later today by Dr. Kay Turner is The Plenitude of the Ephemeral, or Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. She says, in the age of the nanosecond, folklore studies claim a perspective on the critical importance of the short-lived, as observed in numerous traditional forms such as memorial altars, henna-painted Yemen brides, and evaporative moments, such as the traces left by marginalized queer encounters, or the reformulation in art of Mormon legend by local Provo artist Brian Hutchison. Uh, Dr. Kay Turner is in Logan to give the 2018 Fife Folklore Honor Lecture. And uh, that is uh, today, 1.30 p.m., David B. Haight Alumni Center. Reception follows, and that is free and open to the uh, public. Kay Turner is a folklorist and artist working across disciplines, including writing, music, performance, and folklore. She's adjunct professor in performance studies at NYU, past president of the American Folklore Society. And her books include Beautiful Necessity, The Art and Meaning of Women's Altars, and Transgressive Tales, Queering the Grimms. Kay Turner, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Tom. It's wonderful to be here. And I didn't, I didn't add in there that you, uh, you were in a band. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and I was telling you earlier that one of our best shows was in Salt Lake City when we were touring in the uh, early '90s. Um, Had a blast. R remind me the name of the band. Name of the band is Girls in the Nose. Okay, Girls in the Nose. Punk rock all punk, the way. Punk rock. So, yeah. all right. <laughs> How was that? You toured for a while, and uh, we toured for a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the band was active from '85 to '96. Yeah. 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 So, uh, so punk rock. And uh, I guess all the while you were pursuing your studies in folklore? Yeah. I had finished my Ph.D. Mm. at UT Austin. This band came out of um, uh, Austin, Texas, and uh, I had 
co-founded with other folklorists a business there called Texas Folklife. And we were a nonprofit arts organization promoting, preserving, presenting the folk arts and folk life of Texas. So I was doing that kind of work. and But I'd always been in music I, from the time I was like a kid. Uh, I'd had bands in high school, in college. So um, I wanted to start up a band again. And yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Now, you've, have you studied performance as it relates to folklore? I think the... Well, there, there are some connections there. There are some connections there. It's um, it might be a little bit obscure, but um, when I entered UT Austin um, in the late seventies, it was at the height of what was called the performance school of folklore, and there were um, a number of professors uh, at UT at that time who were looking at performance as it related to folklore. So that was kind of my training. Um, Also, I was a performer. I was interested in performance. And um, so it all worked out very well for me. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about folklore in general, then narrow down to this very fascinating topic, the plenitude of the ephemeral. Um, So uh, I've read a statement that you have made, uh, I guess, a a few times um, (laughs) about folklore and the importance of folklore. Um, and you say that people come up to you in parties. What do you do? Polite conversation. You say folklorist. Their response is, "Oh, isn't that, that's nice." <laughs> to which you respond, "What do to you?" To which respond? I always respond, "It's not that nice." Yeah. You know, it's necessary, but you know, it's it can be very prickly and it can be very you know um, aggressive in its own way. It can be uh, it can criticize um, it. Folklore, you know, covers a range of behaviors and expressions, um, and tradition in and of itself is not always, you know, the nicest thing that comes down the pike from, you know, from generation to generation. Um, It can solidly be the thing that really critiques the dominant culture, for example, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, sort of says back to the dominant culture, back to elitism, back to capitalism, no, this is not you know, this is not what we do. This is not what we think. Mm -hmm. We do it differently. Um, So, yeah. So, yeah. So it always is kind of shocking, (laughs) you know, to these very nice people who are trying to make cocktail conversation (laughs) when I sort of say, well, no, it's not that nice. (laughs) (laughs) So you're you're, you're saying this uh, folklore can provide a very needed critique. Uh, What else does folklore do? Well, I think that, you know, folklore... really does give us a sense of um, continuity. It probably, it's, you know, one of its most profound places of um, of expression is within the family, within the small community, within, you know, sort of dedicated communities like anything from, you know, a sports team to um, a sorority to a religious group. Um, wherever s- people have something in common and they begin a process of creating, you know, ways to understand their connection to each other. And they often do that through things like songs and, you know, um, sayings or, you know, costumes or, you know, um, dramas, you know, lots of artistic forms that kind of come up out of a a sense of belonging, 
in a way. So folklore is very, very important, and it's everywhere. Um, You know, I had one of those talks just yesterday with um, the guy who was driving me in Salt Lake City to pick up my my rent car, and he said, oh, is folklore the Renaissance times, the medieval times? Mm -hmm. And, you know, again, you know, you just find yourself in the backseat of a van going, no, no, it is not. It is not the Renaissance times. It is right now. Mm-hmm. And I said, I said, I'm sure there's folklore in your life. Tell me something about you and I'll tell you, you know, the folklore of it. And he goes, oh, well, I'm Mexican and my grandmother, you know, always did this thing with eggs over our chest to clean, you know, it's called Olympia. You know, it's a, it's a folk remedy for, you know, sort of getting rid of bad spirits and bad things. It helps you heal. And I said, well, you've got major folklore going on right there. And mm-hmm. I said, it's, you know, it's living tradition. Mm-hmm. It's what's happening now. It's ways that people, you know, pull together around different aspects of this tremendously complex world that we live in. Uh, this might be a good time to bring in uh, this before we get into the ephemeral. Um, I was fascinated by a talk that you gave to a conference in uh, Germany um, about uh, refugees, mm-hmm. you know, to, to, to pull a very current uh, theme. Um, and you were talking about, about uh, it's kind of complex, but, but very interesting. You're talking about art, which critiques journalism about refugees. And then how folklore it's, can, can critique the art, and, and it gets it gets into some very interesting uh, themes about how we uh, view uh, refugees through whatever lens we're looking at, whether it be journalism or art or, or folklore. Uh-huh. Um, so I wonder if you could talk about that the art that you talked about that you talked about an artist uh, called Phil Collins, uh, how to make uh-huh. a refugee. Mm-hmm. Interesting art. Maybe we could yeah, start there. Yeah. Um, yeah, let me give you just a little bit of background. I was asked to speak at a conference. Um, we have a – the American Folklore Society has a sister organization in Europe called CIF, the International Society for Folklore and Ethnology. And they have their – you know, um, they have a conference every other year. And so they pick a theme. And the theme in twenty. 17 uh, had to do with migrant the whole migrant crisis in Europe. Um, and we were asked, several of us who were the keynote speakers were asked to reflect on an amazing website that I encourage all of the listeners to go to. It's called Refugee Republic. Refugee Republic has a hyphen in between those two words. It was made by three artists from the Netherlands. And it is a wonderful, very, very um, extensive – you have to be willing to spend a few hours with this website because it's a very extensive treatment of a number of trips that these three artists made to a Kurdish refugee camp in northern Iraq, a refugee camp that was established about 10 years ago in an old palace area where Saddam Hussein had had a summer home. And it was turned into a refugee camp. And – what it gives you when you go into it, you can go down different roads through the camp. You know, you can take the road of culture, you can take the road of economics, you can take the road of, you know, everyday life. And you can, there are wonderful interviews with people just doing what they do in refugee camps. So 
we were asked to respond to that. So I went looking at various other artistic representations of refugees and the refugee crisis to sort of get a sense of what artists were saying about it, um, other than these artists who did Refugee Republic. Phil Collins had made a very interesting videotape also, um, I think it's available online, um, called How to Make a Refugee. This was one of the first things that I found because this was made in the end of the 90s. It was about the it was about refugees coming out of um, Bosnia and Serbia. And what he showed in the video, it's a very interesting video of him making a video of a journalist interviewing a family that was in a refugee situation. So what he's looking at is the way the journalist is creating a story about this family. And the the climactic moment in it is that the journalist asks a young boy who had been shot to open his shirt and show his scars mm. to sort of, you know, to add, you know, kind of tragic flavor to the to the piece. So, you know, so this is this is Phil Collins stepping away and saying, hey, this is how refugees are made, you know, by the media. This is what what we're told, right? This is the picture we're given. And so from there, I went, you know, into other, looking at other artists, you know, who had done interesting projects. Um, but, you know, I thought that the most important thing that I said was that a lot of this artwork was a really good critique of journalism, because journalism tended, as that uh, journalist did um, in the Phil Collins piece, tends to, you know, telescope a story necessarily because they're journalists and tries to find the soundbite or the the thing that will capture the audience's imagination and sell some product down the line, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, in this particular case, um, you know, it, it seemed to me that journalists in this era that we live in have focused in large part on the journey. What you read about in various accounts of migrants in, um, you know, coming out of Syria or coming out of Iraq or 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 other places um, and trying to get into Europe is that they have these, you know, horrendous experiences crossing the Mediterranean. You know, they drown and they suffer and that kind of thing. But what journalism tends to give us is a sense that they are going to get to the other side and it's going to be better. But in fact, we know that it's not better on the other side. And we also know that refugees, you know, for the most part, endure refugee status for anywhere from, you know, three years to 15 years and sometimes longer. So the whole picture that's painted, you know, by the journalist was being critiqued by the artist. But then as a folklorist, I was also kind of trying to say, well, you know, on the other hand, we have to engage more specifically, you know, with the people themselves to let them tell their stories of their experience. And there were a few artists who were doing that. But I think that it's even more important now for folklorists to take a stand and, you know, um, open up our ability to work with people and to work across boundaries, especially, you know, to help people understand the experiences that people are going through in this, you know, incredible period of our world history where we have, you know, close to, you know, 65 million people in constant motion right now. You know, that's a huge number of people. And it's not just in Europe. You know, it's all over the world. 
um, people are having trouble, you know, being home mm-hmm. and finding a home, and which is central to, you know, the, the idea of home is so central to the folklore project that, you know, it's just, um, yeah, it, it's really important for folklore to have a, a role in sort of giving a sense of, you know, how home is made. And I want to follow up with that. Uh, let's take a let's take a break right now, and then uh, we do have a, a caller, John. Hold on, John in Moab is, is going to ask a question. Hold on through the break, John, and we'll get to you right after the right after the break. Armenian composer Arno Babajanyan wrote this trio. Violinist Ani Kavafian played it with Babajanyan and learned a few things about the piece and the composer. He used to sweat an awful lot because he was putting so much energy into everything he did. Music by Arno Babajanyan on the next Performance Today from APM. Tonight at 9 on Utah Public Radio. Make an appointment with Public Radio's favorite family doc on the next Zorba Pastor on Your Health. It'll be a jam-packed hour in healthy living, including this recipe for... Chipotle chicken mango salad. We always have a great time. So will you on Zorba Pastor on Your Health from PRX. Tune in Sunday at noon to Utah Public Radio. Thanks for being with us for Access Utah. We're talking about folklore. The uh, My guest is Kay Turner. She is a folklorist and artist working across disciplines, including writing, music, performance, and folklore. And uh, she is in Logan to give the 2018 Fife Folklore Honor Lecture. It's titled The Plenitude of the Ephemeral, or Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. She says in the age of the nanosecond, folklore studies claim a perspective on the critical importance of the short-lived as observed in numerous traditional forms. We're going to get into talking about that. We have been talking about uh, folklore critiquing art, which critiques journalism about uh, about the refugees. Uh, very interesting. We'll talk a little bit more about that. And and this, uh, this concept of home and how uh, folklore delineates what home means. I want to talk about that as well. We have um, John in uh, Moab who has uh, called us. Uh, John, uh, go ahead with your question or comment. Well, hi. Um, good morning. Uh, Something you said got me thinking, and which might be a dangerous thing at <laughs> 9 in the morning, still on my first cup of coffee. Um, what you said, you used to be a, a punk rock musician. <laughs> and so I got to thinking, you know, what's the relationship between music and folk art and folklore? And, and, and you know, a lot of times you'll see someone, an accomplished, trained musician, a Bach, take a folk and turn it into something, you know, much more interesting, or, or not even, I shouldn't say much more interesting, different, something different. Um, also, if you look at the, the lyrics of a lot of the music coming out of young people these days, um, they're upset about the situation, you know, the, the 50s they were singing about, you know, you know, your burgers and the Chevy and, you know, the girl you're going steady with, and by the by the 60s and 70s, they were think, singing about ending the war and, say, crooked administrations and, you know, politics. And then it just got into, like, the 80s where they were just screaming about frustration. And I don't know where you fit into that 
uh, <laughs> Always screaming about first If you mentioned when, what decade you were a, a punk musician, I used to live with a bunch of them. They're, they're not bad, except they'll drink all your beer. So if you could speak to that, how, how music fits in with uh, folklore and with uh, folk art. Thank you, John. Appreciate the question. Very interesting. Well, John, I, I probably should confess that, you know, the attitude was punk, the music was rock. Um, so I didn't, I wasn't really a part of the original, you know, punk uh, punk explosion of the late uh, 70s. Um, but I think you've asked a really good question to me simply because music has always been a part of the way that I, as a folklorist, have kind of come to my ideas and thinking about folklore. Um, I think that the first thing that I ever knew about folklore was music. My father taught me traditional tunes when I was a kid, and, you know, some of those I still sing, and I really appreciate your sense that, um, you know, that a classical musician, for example, can take an old tune like, I just heard a, an amazingly beautiful rendition of O Susanna um, that was done by a classical musician in New York City. Um, that that music is kind of, that's our language for feeling each other out and feeling what's important to each other. So that's, you know, also what folklore is also very much about the folklore the you know there's a whole category of folklore called folk music and many of my colleagues and you know uh here in the united states and throughout the world that's what they study they study music and the history of vernacular music and they interview and work with musicians i did that for a long time with you know traditional fiddle players in uh in texas traditional conjunto um mexican musicians in texas um i've worked with you know arab musicians in brooklyn over the past number of years um i did a big show in brooklyn called brooklyn macomb after september 11th because i knew that the musicians in brooklyn who came from syria and lebanon and yemen were you know not able to work because they were being prejudiced after september 11th and so we had a big show that featured them and got people thinking about again about the humanity of people that that music can really demonstrate so yeah i mean it's it's a big deal music is the big deal it really is mm. yeah thanks for the question john by the way you can call us as well uh, 800-826-1495 800-826-1495 or you can email us upraccess at gmail.com upraccess at gmail.com and i uh, should note that uh, k turner's talk the 2018 five folklore honor lecture is this afternoon 1 30 p.m david b Haight alumni center reception follows and it's uh, free and open to the public before we leave this uh, issue of uh, refugees and the depiction of refugees in, in, in art and journalism and folklore, um, I want to talk about a, um, a piece by Ai Weiwei, who's he's dealing nowadays with refugees, right? That's, uh, that's yeah. what he's focusing yeah. the art on. And, and a piece called Laundromat. Right, right. Tell us about that. Ai Weiwei, um, for those of you who... who don't know, um, is a very, very famous Chinese dissident artist. He, um, he was imprisoned in China for his work critiquing um, 
the regime there, the communist regime. Um, he lived in New York City for a number of years. He went back to China. He got himself into trouble again. Um, he's um, a, a very, very uh, provocative artist and one who is very, very dedicated to social justice. So he did a project a couple of years ago. He went... Um, he went to a refugee camp that had been moved. Now, one of the things that happens with refugee camps is that, you know, some of them are very stable, like this one that I was mentioning in Iraq that has Kurdish refugees in it and has been functioning for um, more than 10 years. But sometimes refugee camps come up and they, you know, they disappear quite quickly. And I Weiwei went to a, a camp in um in Macedonia, um, and he, the camp had been abandoned, and he collected all of the refuse that was in the camp, all of the, you know, the clothing, the shirts, the pants, the dresses, the underwear, the socks, the shoes, the backpacks, the little toys, the things, you know, the keychains, and he took them, you know, um, he took them and he laundered all of them and he hand pressed them. He ironed them. He made them all very, you know, sort of clean and beautiful again. And then in a gallery in New York City, he the entire gallery was covered with all of these, you know, all of these pieces that he had collected from the refugee camp. So he did that as a way of, you know, as a way of marking um the 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 transitory state of people's lives in refugee camps but he was trying to sort of take the refuse of it the refuse of that transience and remake it into art so that you could see when you came into the gallery the thing that he did i thought quite interestingly um was that he showed you through a color and pattern grid that he did. So he could put all the red pants together and all the yellow shirts together, you know, in some way, so that when you came into the gallery, you saw the pattern of these people's lives as having some holistic presentation. Mm-hmm. Your point uh, in this presentation was you know, art can be important. Art can can tell the story in a, in a new way, give d- d- new perception to the, right. to the problem. right. Um, but it all depends on how the how the viewer, how the audience is taking this, how right. seeing this. That, that's right. very important. I think that's very important. And, and the thing that I did go on to say, I mean, I appreciated the Ai Weiwei piece, but of course, the it was empty of the people who wore those clothes. Mm-hmm. Right? They were gone, and he could never find them. He could only find what was left. And that says one thing. But there was another project that I also referenced in that talk, which is an ongoing project along the border in Arizona, which is the University of Arizona has um, a forensic anthropology department. And there are some people in that department who've, you know, come together with photographers and artists in in Arizona to create a project whereby they they take all of the leftovers that they find along the border and and the um, the detritus that's left from people's death who don't make it across the Sonoran Desert um, coming up from uh, from the south if they die there they take that stuff and they 
and they do a kind of forensic analysis of it, trying to identify people so that they can then go back into Mexico or Colombia or Nicaragua or wherever the person has come from and be able to give the family a sense that the person has died, mm. that these are their remains, these are the things that they left. So they're doing, to me, that's an art project too, because it was, um, what they did was they, and this was an, in this one ravine in um, along the border in Arizona, um, they found a place where like hundreds of backpacks had just been abandoned. And so there was a stream of backpacks and they photographed that. Then they photographed in inside the installation of the artwork, they created a kind of river, you know, with, um, you know, with projectors, a river that, sh- that they then superimposed those backpacks onto. And you walked through the river and had the, you know, had the backpacks, along the side of you and then that led you into a room where the actual backpacks were all up Mm, on the wall mm. it was very moving it was very moving and you know the whole i mean the backpack i could talk about that for days Mm. (laughs) just put backpacks Mm. you know backpacks in our era have come to mean something that you know i don't think any of us ever thought they would who carried Mm. a little backpack and went camping as a you know as a kid you know yeah, certainly. 20, has a, 30 years ago. A big impact, an artifact, I guess yeah. you call it that, like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you have you have said the, the, the folk themselves are able to tell their stories, and of course that gets us into the folklore of this. Yeah. Um, there, there was a, a woman you, you talked about um, who put images of her former home on her dress. Right, right. That seems very powerful. Right. Yeah, This is, so th- this was a woman um, who... Uh, was um, a refugee from Iraq and from, I think, from Basra, if I remember. Um, and she was in a refugee camp. An artist started working with women who um, could embroider um, memories. And, and so this woman had already been embroidering the, her mosque, her home, you know, she had little architectural drawings that she then, you know, she sketched onto her dress and embroidered those places onto her dress so that they would stay in memory. And mm-hmm. and also so that she um, could, you know, in, in a very, um, you know, kind of beautiful, compact way, carry her, you know, the town that she would never see again. She believed that she would never be able to go back Um and but she would keep it with her on her clothing close to her, you know, as she went through through her daily life. Yeah, that's so poignant, but uh, kind of a, a a way to take some power, right? To yeah. to, to to reclaim something that maybe yeah. was lost. Yeah. yeah. What yeah. are some, what are some other ways that, uh, that people turn to folklore, use folklore uh, to to carry home, carry their dwellings with them? Is a way, your sense of home is is very important, especially if you've lost your home. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, I think that um, um, again, if we if we look at you know art making in particular, there's there's lots of references to ideas of home in um, in traditional music. Um, even in traditional dance forms, but I think in art making, in actual material culture. Um, 
there are lots of reference points because people do take, you know, their particular, you know, um, thing and they can remake it. They can remake a sense of home by taking the actual architectural form. Um, There's a wonderful artist named Beverly Buchanan. Um, She's now deceased and um, uh, she was from the South and she became an artist late in life. She's kind of a, you'd kind of probably call her a cross between a a, a folk artist and a, a a more conventional fine artist. She she was trained, but she had grown up poor in the South, and she loved the architecture of the shotgun shack and, you know, the single-pen house and the sort of, you know, uh, one-room shack that, she, that were part of her growing up. And so... Um, she, as she went on to become an artist, she started making these little miniature uh, shotgun shacks and um, and uh, single pen houses and that kind of thing, and coloring them brilliantly, painting them, you know, red and yellow and green and you know, bright colors and just just beautiful, beautiful work. And that was her way of enlivening her sense of you know of her past of of her understanding of home that on the outside to the outsider looked like a poor circumstance um but to her was that's how i grew up that's where i grew up those you know that those were my you know my people and my home and you know uh so i again i think she was leveling a kind of you know uh leveling a little bit of a critique also back right yeah uh, let's take another break. When we come back, I want to get into uh, talking about some of the themes of your talk here, the plenitude of the ephemeral. Some very interesting things, uh, memorial altars, uh, hennepated Yemen brides, and evaporative moments. We'll talk about a few of those themes. Uh, Kate Turner uh, is in Logan. She's in studio with us uh, ahead of her uh, 2018 Five Folklore Honor Lecture, which is titled The Plenitude of the Ephemeral, or Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. And uh, that uh, talk is uh, today, 1.30 p.m., David B. Haight Alumni Center. Reception follows. That's free and open to the public. More following this break. Corn agriculture spread quickly throughout Utah with the emergence of the newly developed culture that we now call the Fremont. Their population peaked with widespread agriculture, large villages, and artistic expressions between 900 and 1200 A.D., During their final centuries in Utah, the social fabric holding Fremont culture together became strained by scarcity in land, drought, and population growth. These stressors caused conflict and inequality resulting in the abandonment of a distinct Fremont lifestyle. However, the Fremont way of life did not end suddenly. Rather, Fremont culture ended much in the same way it began, through the blending of ideas and practices over time. This segment of Anthropology, What's It To You, has been made possible by our members and the USU Museum of Anthropology collection, including pre-Columbian Peruvian ceramics, Indonesian textiles, and Great Basin. Details at anthromuseum.usu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour is Dr. Kay Turner. Uh, she is giving the 2018 Five Folklore Honor Lecture uh, later today, 1.30 p.m., David B. Haight Alumni Center. There's a reception that follows that's free and open to the uh, public. The title of the talk is The Plenitude of the Ephemeral, or Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. Dr. Turner says in the age of the nanosecond, folklore studies claim a perspective on the critical importance of the short-lived. Uh, so I want to get into talking uh, about that. So, uh, 
folk, and you give some examples, right? Folklore can respond to this this uh, speedy age, the age of the nanosecond. Right, right. <laughs> um, so I want to talk about so, so memorial altars. Mm-hmm. Tell me about this. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, well, I think for the listening audience, it, it, it might be um, worthwhile just simply just kind of as a point of rhetoric, really, um, just to sort of say that, you know, I think when people think of folklore and think of the work that folklorists do, they they think of us doing, um, you know, working on things that last for a long time, um, like the, you know, like the song that was carried down through your family, you know, grandpa sang it and grandma sang it and dad sung it and I sing it. And we've had that song in our family for, you know, 50 years or 75 years. And that's folklore. And that is folklore. There's there's a, a major part of folklore and folklore study that is interested in things that are long-lasting, and um, especially vernacular traditions or traditions that come up out of people's um, uh, ways of living, okay? So that's, I mean, that's kind of our bailiwick. That's what people, that's what we do. That's what we, you know... Um, in fact, I was telling Tom earlier that in uh, the van ride that I had to pick up my uh, rent car yesterday in Salt Lake City, the guy, you know, when he asked me what I did and I said I was a folklorist, he, you know, he said, oh, you know, do you study the Renaissance times? <laughs> you know, and I said, no, I said, I do not. So, you know, I said, I study living traditions, things that are happening now. And so... um so to unfix that idea that what folklore is all about and only about uh, are things that are long-lived, I wanted to sort of, you know, sort of move in a different direction toward our understanding of the folklore of the short-lived. Um, and uh, and that's what my talk is about today. Um, the, the folklore of the short-lived is as I'll discuss later on, is very much connected with performances, um, uh, ways that things that are performed can only be performed in moments. They can't, a performance can't go on for a long time. It can only happen in time. It starts, it happens, and it's over, and then it disappears, right? So the the word ephemeral um, uh comes from the Latin, um, and it refers to something that only lasts for a day. That's the meaning of the word. Mm-hmm. Something that's ephemeral lasts for a day, and um, you know, it's uh, it, it's equivalent in nature is the is the mayfly. The mayfly is you know born in the morning, comes out of its larva, flies into the sun, has a great afternoon, and is dead by dinner. Mm. And so uh, a mayfly is a classic example of in um, you know in bug lore, it, you know what would be called an ephemeral an ephemeral uh, animal. Uh, so so I just I, I got very interested in this idea of how the ephemeral and and ephemerality it's you know um, it, it's ex- its expressive side could 
be used to kind of capture some of the things that happen in folklore that are performed, you know, so that something can change, so that something can be recognized, so that something, you know, can be, um, a gap can be crossed. So, uh, so for example, in, um, uh, in henna traditions um, that are part of um, uh, part of bridal traditions in the Muslim world, um, when you get married, you have a henna party with all of your female relatives and your f- female friends, and you have a henna party, and all these beautiful decorations are painted on your hands and around your face and on onto your chest. And then the bridal outfit is put on the next day, and then the wedding takes place. And these particular henna um, decorations are, of course, going to fade. Henna is just a dye. It's a dye um, that fades over time um, and disappears. But the henna decorations that are made on a Yemen bride are meant to recognize that she's changing status. She's changing from single to married. She will never be single again. She will be married, and this this particular act of henna painting can perform that and recognize it, right? So... Um, when um, I, I live in New York City, and I was present um, on September 11th, and um, it was, uh, you know, a terrible day, um, a terrible day to experience, and um, it, it really, um, it, it kind of rendered, I think, um, for those of us who especially who experienced it firsthand, a real sense of the ephemeral, you know, that you could be walking along, you know, on your way to the subway and look up and see an airplane, mm-hmm. you know, flying into the World Trade Center and have that explode, that those buildings, those two gigantic buildings became fragments. They became dust by the end of the day. Talk about something that only, you know, <laughs> that only lived for one day, you know, in that particular moment in time. Um, So I, you know, but of course what happened in New York and happened in many parts of the country, but it was profound in New York and at the Pentagon um, as well in Washington where the other um, plane hit, um, was that these uh, what are termed spontaneous memorials, you know, sort of came up. Um, And... I can only describe them by saying that a huge square in New York City, which is which occupies you know four square blocks, it's a very famous square called Union Square. Um, it was right on the it's on 14th Street, which kind of is at the edge of downtown. Downtown is below 14th Street. Union Square kind of then begins um, the East Village and the West Village, and. What happened there was that immediately, you know, people started taking the missing posters, the posters that went up all over the city of people who were missing and families put up these pictures of all these people that never made it home that night. By the next day, and then certainly the day after, by September 13th, most of those people were suspected to be dead. And so suddenly those pictures became the centerpieces of these memorial, um, these 
these spontaneous memorials. And the thing that got me interested in them in particular was the way in which the ephemeral nature of those memorials could function to, you know, to alleviate the emptiness that had been caused by the loss down at Ground Zero. So Ground Zero and Union Square were like the opposite of each other. Mm. Ground Zero was empty. It was a hole. It was filled with death. And this place started Union Square and Washington Square Park and places throughout, you know, the five boroughs of, of New York City. They started to become settings for remembrance, settings for, you know, for trying to come to terms with what had occurred and to try to reinstall a sense of memory of these people who were now believed to be dead. Hmm. And so the things that were brought there were things that could be used to perform memory. The These paper images, you know, of missing people, there are little mementos of them that families brought, little, you know, teddy bears and things of that nature, candles that were burned, um, flowers that were that were deposited, all ephemeral things, mm-hmm. right? So that's interesting that, you know, eventually there are then permanent memorials, right? Public memorials. Right, yes. This is the beginning, I guess. This is something that can be done in the moment. Be- yes. Because of that human need to... To remember. Right, right. right. That's yeah. right. And what I think is very interesting, um, what happened, um, I've, I've written about this uh, quite extensively, and one thing that I found very interesting in the research um, is that when Maya Lin did the Vietnam War Memorial, that, that was a sea change um, in terms of how people responded to that memorial. Um, people came and brought things. They brought flowers. They brought candles. They brought mementos. They brought the medals that those, you know, young men and women, you know, should have had had they lived or that they had sent home in protest and said, you know, this war is not my war. Take these medals and, you know, throw them away. You know, various, you know, narratives around all this, you know, around uh, the, the dead of that war. And, you know, so that place became a place where ephemerality and the permanent monument started to have a dialogue with each other. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they still, you know, that memorial is, what, it's 25 years old now, mm-hmm. I think. And they have collected, you know, something like two football fields where they have a storage area out in Virginia or Maryland somewhere where they take all of these things that are deposited and they are – if they're not completely things that decay like flowers, they have kept them hmm. in storage. What are people doing, do you think? They come and they respond to Myelin's you know, powerful memorial, but they want to they want to bring something – right. what, what, what are they well, doing? Well, they come to the name. You know, mm-hmm. she – that was the that memorial had every name of every person mm-hmm. um and so they come and they find the name but because it's a sea of names you know um it's 50,000 names and so i think part of it is that when they find the name of the person that their loved one then they want to recognize that you know mm-hmm. moment of kind of coming to the place where that particular person mm-hmm. is recognized. Yeah. And so the giving of something, the performance of that recognition comes through, you know, the ephemeral stuff. 
and you see it on a smaller scale at uh, you know cemeteries. People, yeah, people come and bring things right to to the headstone. Right. I guess that's a connection. You want to well, that's probably connection. the oldest. Yeah, you know that's probably where all of this started mm-hmm. because we can see in archaeological evidence, you know that you know that people came to places of the dead and brought you know, brought ephemeral things, brought flowers and food and stuff to leave for the dead so that if the dead returned or if the dead needed something, they'd have, they'd, mm-hmm. they'd have something to eat, right? right. Um, and so, yeah, it's a, you know, probably graveside um, memorials and remembrances that m- utilize ephemeral materials are very, very old. Mm. And all of these other sort of things, you know, connect through, you know, what we would call kind of a spectrum of association. Um, graveside altars, memorials, roadside shrines, you know, things that you see when someone has, you know, had a car accident and, you know, people have put flowers and balloons and balloons are very interesting because they've (laughs) balloons are big now and you didn't see balloons 20 years ago, Mm -hmm. you know. So it's really interesting also to kind of, you know, work at tracing what starts to be the representative thing. Mm. Teddy bears and balloons have really, you know, they, they're they moving up. Yeah. And balloons, especially ephemeral. Especially. Uh, balloons going to be gone they're per- pretty They're pretty perfect. Quick. They're perfect. But but for a per- uh, person, I guess it's it's that moment when they put it there that that, that has meaning, right? Yeah. Knowing that yeah. the balloon's going to be gone right. in a day or two. Right. Um, I want to, before we just have a couple of minutes uh, left, I want to talk about um, this idea of, uh, of altars, home altars, women's altars. Mm-hmm. You've written a whole book about it. Uh, yeah. Uh, and I think you're going to include this a little bit in your, uh, in your talk yeah. uh, today. So just maybe the, just the, the, the one or two minute version of that. <laughs> we're coming down to the end. Mm. Well, um, the one or two minute version of it is that, uh, the home altar was the subject of my dissertation. Um, it's the it's the particular aspect of folklore that has you know been kind of my calling card you know for the past thirty years. It has it's a topic that has consistently um, um, interested me. I found new ways to think about it, you know, new ways to um, interpret it. I've I've seen. New things evolved through it, such as, you know, the home altar, you know, was the thing that then gave me my interest in the, you know, in the memorials at September 11th. So it's a connection through the idea that there's a place and it's a place that is particular for in the home altar. It's particular. I studied with Mexican-American women who old women in South Texas who taught me the whole deal. Mm. Um, And they were wonderful. And they had it down because they understood that when they came to the little altars that they made, those were not institutional altars. That was not the Catholic Church. This is my altar. This is where I come to do my business with God and the saints and the Virgin. And so what I came to understand about personal home altars made by Mexican-American women was that it was a place where they got to show what was important to them and to get the business done that they needed to get done with the allies that they had 
installed at the altar. And most of those allies, like the Virgin Our Lady of Guadalupe or the Virgin of San Juan de los Lagos, um, uh, San Antonio, most of those allies were saints and aspects of the Virgin that had come down to them through the female line. From their mother, from their grandmother, you know, a statue that was given on the day of a wedding. Now you take this statue of Guadalupe and go to your new home and make your own altar, Mm. you know, that kind of thing. So I was very interested in that whole idea of lineage and a a sort of underground lineage that women, you know, kept, you know, going, you know, that was not institutionally – recognized. In fact, you know, a, a number of the women that I worked with back, this would have been in the late 70s and 80s, a number of these women had been accused of witchcraft, you know, for making these altars. Um, and my primary teacher, Chole uh, Pesina, Soledad Pesina, she lived right across the street from the church. She It was like within spitting distance. And she was accused of being a witch by a priest, and she never went to church again. Hmm. <laughs> uh, much more uh, we could say about that, and uh, <laughs> s- some <I'm> sure. <laughs> uh, some will be uh, said in uh, the uh, 2018 Five Folklore Honor Lecture given by Dr. K. Turner. That'll be happening today, 1.30 p.m., David B. Haight Alumni Center, uh, free and open to the public reception. It follows the title is The Plenitude of the Ephemeral, or Fast, Cheap, and Out of Control. Uh, just wanted to, we only have time to make a plug here. For, uh, you're going to talk a bit about Brian Hutchison, a, a promo yes, artist. Yes, okay, I'm so glad. Uh, so, now, so maybe your 22nd version of okay, this. Okay, my 22nd version is a big shout out to Brian Hutchison um, in Provo. He's a wonderful artist who I met in New York City, and I became interested in his work because he um, he is um, uh, in the LDS church, but he uses um, legends and phenomenon of, uh, of being a Mormon and works on ephemeral aspects of, um, um, of, of Mormonism. Uh, it's a little bit difficult to summarize in, in my 20 seconds yes. here, but, um, he does really beautiful work. I encourage you to, uh, to look at his website. Um, BrianHutchison.com. Yeah, BrianHutchison.com, and that's H-U-T-C-H-I-S-O-N, not Hutchinson, right. but right. Hutchison. Hutchison. Yeah. Well, I encourage you to go there. There's some beautiful work there. Well, the uh, talk is this afternoon, and uh, Kay Turner's been my guest uh, for the hour. Thank you so much. Yes. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Tom. I enjoyed it. And uh, thanks for listening to Access Utah. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR, Logan. KUSK, Vernal. KUSL, Richfield. KUST, Moab. KCEU, Price. KUSU, FM, Logan. Also heard at upr.org.